Happy New Year, everybody. New Year. Turn to your neighbor and look them in the eye and say, Happy New Year, friend. All right. You guys don't sound so happy. We're only six days into 2013, and I feel like it's been six weeks already. How many of you feel that way? It's just been such a, uh, um, I don't know, like a, uh, kind of jumping into the year, a lot of things coming at us. And uh, particularly for my family, over the last week, uh, we've had like a little uh, a virus or a bug, literally going from person to person, one at a time, just getting kind of wiped out for a couple of days. Uh, kids weren't able to go back to school right away. Uh, yesterday, uh, some of us here, we were able to celebrate with Bo and Minnie. Uh, they got married yesterday, and uh, so that was uh, a lot of fun, and just one of many marriages that are going to be taking place this year uh, in our community. And uh, today, uh, I have the uh, opportunity to kick off a new sermon series for our church that's going to actually take 13 weeks. And you're like, whoa, that's not a mini-series, that's like a, a, a long, drawn-out drama. Uh, well, 13 weeks from now is actually Easter. And so uh, between now and then, what we uh, have decided to do is to teach through the Gospel of Mark. And uh, we're not going to be able to cover uh, every story, every, every parable, every incident uh, of Jesus, but we're going to highlight different parts of this Gospel uh, for us as a journey, uh, not only uh, up to Easter, but even through the season of Lent. Um, and uh, what I love about Mark is that uh, it's blunt, it's in your face, and it tells you about Jesus on his terms, not on your terms. Uh, you can either believe it or not, you can accept it or reject it, and uh, it's just pretty much a take it or leave it uh, kind of proclamation. And so uh, today, uh, what I'm going to be sharing is more of an introduction uh, to the book of Mark, uh, to explain to you uh, a little bit about his writing style, uh, his, who he was, and then we're going to take a little bit of time to just look at the opening verses of Mark, and this is going to carry us through the next uh, uh, three months, basically, uh, as we approach Easter together. And so if you have a Bible, uh, please turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, it's in the New Testament. It uh, comes right after Matthew, Matthew, Mark. And uh, we're going to begin in chapter 1, verse 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, it begins this way. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to meet him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I. The thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. 
At once, the Spirit sent him out into the desert. And he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. This is the word of God. Can we bow in prayer? Heavenly Father, as we uh, begin this new series uh, through the Gospel of Mark, Lord, would you uh, be the one who is teaching and unfolding and enlightening and illuminating our minds to um, understand uh, who your Son was and is, his work, uh, his message, his purpose um, for this world, for your kingdom, and for us. Lord, as we begin this journey through the Gospel of Mark, uh, would we come the way that we are, but Lord, may we not finish this series the way that we were. May we, may we be changed and transformed, renewed, challenged. Lord, may we be different as a result of being confronted by the work and the message of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord God, as we begin this new year together, as we start off 2013 with all of our resolutions and commitments and promises, uh, Father, may our greatest promise be to love you more, uh, to know you more, uh, to worship you more deeply and intimately, uh, to have you more in our lives, working in us and working through us. Lord God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Uh, We have in the New Testament four gospel accounts of Jesus, and this is the gospel of Mark. And so let me uh, start off by explaining just a few uh, sort of introductory uh, facts about the gospel of Mark or Mark's gospel. The first thing that you'll notice is that this is the shortest gospel account of the four and uh, most scholars date the Gospel of Mark as being written around 60 A.D. That means roughly 30 years after Jesus was crucified, dead and buried, resurrected from the grave and ascended into heaven, Mark penned his Gospel. And the reason why it probably took so long after the events of Jesus' uh, ministry and life is because most of the communication at that time was through oral transmission. Uh, They didn't have uh, the kind of media outlets that we have today. And so people would share stories uh, about what Jesus did, about what he taught. They would gather together on uh, Sunday, and and in their worship, they wouldn't turn to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, but uh, the teacher or the rabbi or the priest would get up in front of the community, and he would recount uh, the messages of Jesus. And so it was all transmitted orally. And uh, because it was the first gospel, that probably explains why it was also, it is also the shortest gospel. Because uh, the life of Jesus, his ministry and his message was probably very familiar still to the people at that time. There were probably still a lot of people alive who were eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. They were there on the mountainside when Jesus was teaching and performing miracles. They were in the villages when Jesus was performing uh, healings and exorcisms. Uh, Many of them had followed and were part of the crowd that would go from place to place uh, listening to Jesus' teachings. Many of them were there at the foot of the cross as they watched him die. So many of the people in that region and in that time were still very familiar with those events. 
They didn't need a, a, a written record. And so when Mark writes the first written record of Jesus' life, somewhat like a, a biography, um, he just assumes that people knows a lot of what he's talking about. As we just read, he jumps right into the life of Jesus. He doesn't even mention the birth narrative. Whereas uh, Luke and, and Matthew spend a, a couple of chapters each describing the events leading up to Jesus' birth. And as we'll see at the end of the Gospel of Mark, uh, he doesn't really write much about his resurrection appearances either. Whereas the other Gospel writers write extensively about places and accounts where Jesus is interacting with people and as he continues to teach them. Because, again, everybody at that time, around 60 AD, was still very familiar and impacted by the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. It's also the shortest gospel account, and uh, what uh, you'll find is that Mark uses an economy of words. The story moves very fast. Over 40 times, you'll see the expression, immediately or at once. Immediately, Jesus moved into the wilderness. Immediately, Jesus called his disciples together. At once, they left the village and went to the next. Mark's uh, story of Jesus' life is, is, is fast-paced. It's moving at, at, at a speed of light. Um, and it's short. It, it's compact. He uses few words to, descri- uh, to describe and explain very profound truths. Uh, it would be somewhat of a misnomer just to say he's a man of few words because every word that he uses is so rich and packs a punch. And so if we study this gospel together, sometimes just a couple of verses would take literally over an hour for us to examine and to understand and to unpack and apply into our lives. Um, the gospel of Luke, which is the longest of the four gospels, is comprised of 1,151 verses. The gospel of Matthew has 1,071 verses. The gospel of John is 879 verses. And the Gospel of Mark is only 661 verses. It's about half the length of Luke. And because Mark is so short, it oftentimes is overshadowed by the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of John. Most likely, you've probably heard a series, uh, probably four or five years ago at Cornerstone, we did a series on the Gospel of Luke. And it took uh, uh, almost a year and a half for us to cover uh, that series together. And oftentimes you'll hear a gospel of of Matthew series, but rarely do you hear a gospel of Mark series in churches. In fact, as I go to a lot of my sources and go online and see what other people have preached and said about it, Mark has the fewest uh, or has the smallest sermon archive of all the other gospels. Very few people preach on Mark and look to Mark because he's sort of like uh, the, uh, the... uh, the, the youngest child who is overshadowed by the older siblings or the bigger siblings or the bigger child. He, he speaks up the least. And, and so Mark uh, is sort of uh, uh, short and tight and compact and, and overshadowed by some of the other gospel writers. But the story moves fast and every word that Mark uses packs a punch. Uh, Mark, as a person, uh, was part of Paul and Barnabas's entourage. And we know this because of the Acts of the Apostles. After uh, the Gospel of Luke, Luke writes about what happened as the church began to grow and multiply. And there he would talk about Paul and Barnabas extensively. And Mark was part of that entourage that would travel from village, and vil- village to village, city to city, town to town, uh, planting churches, laying down fellowships, and, and teaching people the ways of Jesus. 
there's even an incident in the Acts where uh, Paul and Mark have a falling out. Uh, they have a, dis- a disagreement about uh, the, the next steps of their plan and their strategy to preach the gospel, their itinerary. And uh, it's actually uh, such a, a, um, a, a scathing sort of falling out that it, it shatters the relationship between Paul and Barnabas, who were like best friends. Uh, Barnabas um, uh, go, decides to support Mark and, and go with him, and uh, Paul picks up Timothy and Silas and goes in a different direction. Uh, but later on, uh, we know through Paul's later writings uh, that they uh, were reconciled and that their relationship was restored because Paul speaks very affectionately about Mark. And he speaks of Mark in a way that uh, says that he is very helpful and useful and necessary uh, to his ministry of proclaiming the gospel. And so even though Mark uh, might have uh, kind of uh, disrupted uh, the, the initial sort of outreach to the rest of the world, um, it, God was still working through him. Uh, God was still using him. And uh, that's who he was. Mark came to faith uh, through Peter. If you read in uh, Peter's letters, uh, he speaks of Mark as his child or his son of the faith, uh, which alludes to the fact that Peter was the one who uh, first proclaimed the gospel to him. Mark was not one of the 12 disciples. And Mark was not one of the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. Mark was a second-hand witness, which means that what he wrote was through the testimony and the stories of other people, primarily the Apostle Peter. Mark was his assistant. And so if you read through the Gospel of Mark, what you'll find is that one of the primary characters next to Jesus Christ is the Apostle Peter. And Mark writes almost everything that you, can, you need to know about Peter apart from what Peter writes about himself in his letters to the church. And it's not just a glowing account of who Peter was, how he was the rock and how he was uh, one of the big three that was able to go up to the Mount of Transfiguration. But Mark also talks about the, the instances when Peter makes a fool of himself. He talks about times when Peter sticks his foot in his mouth. When Jesus rebukes him in front of the rest of the disciples and said, Satan, get behind me. And so Mark um, is uh, writing a, a lot. A lot of his material is coming from Peter's memoirs and his experiences. And, and I can't wait until Easter when we talk about the resurrection appearance because there's this really intimate moment between the risen Lord and Peter that Mark writes about. And, and, and every time I read that passage in Mark 16, I'm always blown away and, I, and, I, and, I, and I'm over, over, overwhelmed with, with God's love and his forgiveness and his grace. But we'll get to that in 13 weeks. Uh, but most of the material that Mark writes is uh, based on Peter's memoirs. And because Mark was the first gospel, Matthew and Luke, also their structure and most of their content is built around Mark's gospel. In other words, Mark is kind of like a template, a rough outline of the life and ministry of Jesus. And the other gospel writers come around, uh, around 80 to 90 AD, roughly 20 to 30 years after Mark wrote his gospel, and they use Mark's gospel as sort of a framework. And the reason why Matthew and Luke and John are longer is because now they need to elaborate and fill in more details because now there are fewer and fewer people that were alive when Jesus was alive. There are fewer and fewer people who can say, hey, I was there, I heard that, I saw him with my own eyes. And so the other gospel writers, they 
add more detail. They add more uh, examples, more teachings, more miracles than what Mark does. Uh, And finally, uh, Mark, as we'll find over the next uh, few months, is a little bit more focused on what Jesus does than what he says. Mark focuses more on Jesus' actions and deeds than on his teachings. There are 19 miracles in Mark as opposed to four parables. If you put all the four Gospels together, there are 40 parables. Mark only writes about four of them, which means the other Gospel writers write three times more on the teachings of Jesus. But what Mark does is he focuses on his actions and his deeds, what he did, what he does. You'll find a lot of present tense in Mark's Gospel, what Jesus is doing, where he's going, who he's talking to, what he's up to. That's sort of the lens, the perspective that Mark gives to us into the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I could share so much more uh, about this. There, there, really, there, there are books and commentaries and there's just so much. But I felt like these were maybe five things about his writing style, his technique, his perspective, a little bit about who he was, uh, who he kind of ran with, which crowds he was a part of, uh, who his discipler was, and where he got his material from. And remember, uh, well, I, I didn't say this, but uh, all but 31 verses out of Mark's 661 verses are quoted in the other three Gospels. They use all of Mark's material except for 31 verses. And so Mark is important. He was the one who first penned the life of Jesus for the church to be able to have and to hold as a document for worship, study, and discipleship. And so what I'll do now is I'm just going to go over very briefly uh, the first uh, few verses, uh, which we could sort of call the prologue of the Gospel of Mark. And then next week, fasten your seatbelts because we're going to jump right in. Mark immediately gets into the life of Jesus at once. He just jumps right in. Okay? He doesn't even talk about the birth. He doesn't go through the genealogy like Matthew does. He doesn't have to prove anything. He just says, hey, in verse 1, the beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is a statement that he makes right off the get-go. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the first gospel that kicks off the life of Jesus. It's not ordered before Matthew, but it is the first written account, which sounds like the other first written account of God's activity in all of creation, which is Genesis. And what does Genesis 1 tell us? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so there's that ring of in the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is what God is doing. He's doing a new thing. And uh, he uh, uses the word, the reason why we're using the word gospel, I would call it the gospel of, we could call it the gospel of Peter if we want, because it's really, it chronicles his life and his interactions with Christ. But that word gospel, let's, let's define that really quickly, because I feel like it's a word that is used so often in the church today. Um, uh, more so than, than, than I can remember in my upbringing and my journey, uh, my, my life with, with the Lord and in the church. But the gospel is not just an adjective that describes a certain kind of music, like gospel music. Uh, it's not just a biography, the gospel of Jesus Christ or the gospel of Mark. It's a story or biography. But literally in the Greek, the word gospel is the word euangelion. 
which is literally translated the good news. And uh, before this word gospel or euangelion, the good news, was used to talk about the life of Jesus, it was actually used to talk about the life of kings and emperors. Oftentimes when uh, a messenger would come back from the battlefield, he would bring good news that their army had defeated their foes. And so that was the gospel, the good news that their army had defeated their foes. It was good news. And now Mark is using that word to describe what Jesus has done. This is good news. Jesus has done something good. Jesus has done something that will change your life forever if you put your faith in it. If you accept it and believe in it. It's like any kind of news that you can receive. You can't change the news. It happened in history. It happened as fact. Whether you believe it or not, it happened. Mark is giving us the good news, these events, these teachings, these interactions of Jesus, and he's proclaiming it about Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus Christ, Christ is not his surname, as many people mistakenly think. First name Jesus, last name Christ. You know, that's not his last name. Jesus' last name, I, I don't know what it is. I'm sorry, I'm a little embarrassed to say that, but Christ was a title. In fact, the more appropriate way to say it would be Jesus the Christ, because Christ was a title that meant uh, it was interchangeable with Messiah or the Anointed One. So this is the beginning of the good news message about Jesus, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Savior, And then Mark goes on to say, as if I didn't describe him enough, the Son of God. And the Son of God is this revelation that you'll see throughout the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Again, I'm just going to fast forward to the end of, of Mark chapter 15 and Mark chapter 16, where the Roman centurion looks up to Jesus on the cross. He's dying on the cross, and Jesus says, even though he's being persecuted, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And the Roman centurion hears that and he says, surely he is the son of God. It's the revelation. He now sees one of the men who nailed him to the cross. He says, surely he is the son of God. Excuse me. I'm not crying. Danny's the crier. I'm not. (laughs) Trust me, in a couple of weeks when he preaches, I I guarantee you, we're preaching gospel. He's going to cry. He's going to cry. I cry sometimes. He cries every time. All right. I got something in my eye. So this is the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. And then he just jumps right into the story. And Mark says, It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. And there's a new quote here. It actually, this is a quote from Malachi. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now, Mark uh, wasn't a Jew, and he didn't write to the Jews. He actually wrote to the Greeks and the Gentiles. And so what what you'll find as you study uh, the the Gospel of Mark is that he doesn't refer to the Old Testament as much as the other Gospel writers. But here, he jumps right in, in verse 2 and 3, and he refers to Isaiah and Malachi. And this is really important for us to understand. What this means is the Gospel of Jesus Christ, his life, his ministry, and his message— Even though Mark says it's the beginning, it's not something brand new. You have to understand this. Jesus wasn't plan B. 
God created the heavens and the earth. People messed it up. God tried to renew them, redeem them. He called the people to himself. He built an ark, a temple, you know, the Ten Commandments, all that jazz. And, you know, people just kept rebelling and falling into debauchery. And it just, it just fell apart. The wheels came off. And so God just decided, okay, forget it. You know, for 400 years, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to start plan B. This is going to work. So he sends his son. No. That's not who Jesus is, and that's not why he came. Jesus wasn't the backup plan. Jesus Jesus wasn't some contingency in case uh, God's plan didn't go right and the people just rejected him. The reason why Mark points back and pulls from the Old Testament is because these prophecies point to the fact that Jesus was always, from the very beginning, part of God's plan of salvation and redemption. Jesus didn't come out of thin air. Jesus actually fulfilled over 50 prophecies in the Old Testament. And these are really obscure prophecies. I mean, the odds of one person being able to fulfill every single one of these prophecies is like 1 in 10 to the 250th exponential. I mean, literally, it's like 1 with like, just literally like hundreds of zeros behind it. Or 1 with a, no, a 10 with a 1 with hundreds of zeros. I'm not a math guy, but you know what I'm saying. The odds of one person fulfilling all of these Old Testament prophecies prophecies. And and, and Mark begins there because he wants us to know that this is a continuation of the work that God is doing to redeem and to restore the lost. A broken world that's falling apart. Jesus is part of the plan that God is using to heal this broken world. To address evil and wickedness and sin. Depravity. Everything in this world, whether you know it or not, is broken. Everything in this world is decaying. Everything in this world is falling apart. Even when we create new structures and new technologies, eventually those things become old and outdated. Those structures become compromised and fragile and eventually are demolished and are overcome with new structures. Everything, even our human bodies, are decaying. Look at me. Right? I mean, look, maybe you can't tell. Ask my wife, but we look at our wedding pictures and we celebrated 10 years recently and we're looking at the, oh my gosh, what happened to us? We look so different. Like we're falling apart here, you know? And I am, she's not. But you know what I'm saying? Like everything is decaying. And Jesus is part of the plan to redeem and to restore everything in creation that God called into being, that God saw that it was good and he wants to restore it to that goodness to that purity, to that wholeness. And the prophecy that Jesus fulfills from Isaiah and Malachi are the prophecies of someone who will will come before Jesus. So these prophecies are actually about someone who will come before the Christ, the Son of God, namely John the Baptist. And uh, John was considered a forerunner of Jesus Christ. And A forerunner, I know we don't know really what a forerunner is, but let me explain what it was in biblical time. A forerunner had two main responsibilities. The first responsibility was this. The forerunner would go and make sure that the path that the king or the emissary was going to take was efficient, safe, and smooth. In other words, if a king wanted to go and explore his kingdom, a forerunner would go out before the king, oftentimes months in advance, and would survey the land and make sure that there's a path, that there's a road around and through the kingdom. 
In fact, there were times when there were mountains that would be in the way from where the king was heading, so they would literally cut a hole through the mountain or they would level the mountain. Or maybe there was a treacherous cavern or a valley that would be filled in. Mountains laid low, valleys filled in. The forerunner's job was to make sure that wherever the king wanted to go, there was a straight path and that the king could go wherever he wanted. I remember visiting a friend of mine who lives down in Dorchester a few years ago. He and his family have intentionally decided to live in a very distressed part of the city so as to uh, do ministry in their neighborhood among the people that they live with. And uh, one of the things that uh, he had been working on with his wife was to take this old abandoned lot next to his house and uh, turn it into a public garden. They wanted to take something that was ugly, something that a lot of the drug dealers and drug users were going into to get high, and you would find all kinds of paraphernalia there. They wanted to take that lot, and they wanted to beautify it. They wanted to restore it. And so they wrote all these grants, got all the city funding, government funding, and they took literally all this money, and they built a beautiful public garden where everybody in that community and neighborhood could come and plant flowers and vegetables, and it was just really a, a, a fascinating work that they were doing. So much so that it caught the attention of uh, the mayor of Boston, Tom Menino. So Tom Menino sends them a message, or writes them a letter or something of that nature. And he says, I'm going to come on this date and I'm going to visit your garden. And I want to affirm the work that you're doing. And uh, it was also part of like a publicity thing, you know, just to sort of say, hey, we funded this thing. And we want you to know that we're all about the city. And uh, when I was there, my friend was telling me, Eugene, you see the sidewalk? Yeah. He says, uh, two weeks before the mayor came, it was just broken and gravel. But literally, as soon as I got the letter, uh, the, the public works commission, they came in and they dug it all out and they relayed the entire sidewalk around the whole block. Because when the mayor comes, they want a smooth sidewalk. When the mayor stands, they don't want him to you know, twist his ankle. And when they're taking pictures and doing press releases, they want the city of Boston to know that we are on the up and up. And I was like, wow, that's fascinating. Everywhere the mayor goes, they make sure that uh, the, the surroundings or the setting is going to look just right. That's the forerunner's job. The forerunner would go ahead of the king and make sure that wherever the king was going, a way was prepared, a path was made. And the second job of the forerunner was to let everybody know that someone important is coming. Pay attention, everybody. The king is on his way. Wake up. Clean your houses. Mow your lawns. Cut your hair. Get your affairs in order because the king is coming and we need to receive him with pomp and circumstance. That was the job of the forerunner and that's what John does. John says... He comes, he baptizes in the desert, in the region, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's asking the people to prepare their hearts for the coming of Jesus. Get your hearts ready for the coming of Jesus. And so the whole countryside and all the people went out to him because John... Not only does Jesus fulfill prophecy, but now John is fulfilling prophecy. And Mark tells us that he's wearing camel's hair and a leather belt, eating honey and locusts. And the reason why he gives us those details is because John is also coming 
the way Elijah came. Elijah, the great prophet of the Old Testament. And so everybody's familiar with Elijah. Now they see another Elijah-type figure coming to prepare the way for the Son of God. And so the people come, they confess their sins, and they're baptized by him in the Jordan. And you would almost think that you could stop there and, uh, you know, we don't actually need Jesus to show up because look what John's doing. John's preaching. Uh, everybody's going out to see him. They're confessing their sins. They're being baptized. I mean, gosh, revival's happening. John is getting it done. Who needs Jesus? Let's let Jesus come later when John starts to decline or when the numbers go down or whatever. But then look at what John says. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You see, John knows who he is and he knows who he isn't. He knows that he's just a forerunner. And he knows that the one coming after him is so much greater and more powerful that he's not even worthy to loosen the strap on his sandal. What that means is this. The people who loosened the straps on sandals were slaves and servants. They had the lowest, most menial job in the house. When visitors and guests came, they would walk into the, uh, the doorway and the servants would come and they would loosen their sandals and they would wash their feet. John is saying, I'm not even worthy to do that. And the reason why he's saying that is not just because he's not worthy, but because the one coming after me is so great. See, I baptize with water. Water, it's just a symbol, it's a sign. It's pointing to something greater. And what it's pointing to is the Son of God who is going to come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit, the real thing, the real thing. So John is preparing a way and he's letting everybody know who's coming. Prepare your hearts, people. And by the way, the one who's coming, he's great. He's so great that I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. And then, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. Once John set everything up, let everybody know what's coming. He comes now. The king comes. And he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And then look what happens in verse 10. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open And the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven saying, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. When Jesus is baptized, three incredible things happen. The first thing is this. The heavens are literally ripped apart. Okay, like the heavens are torn in two. Secondly, the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove. Like a dove. It wasn't literally a bird who came and built a nest in his hair. No, like a dove, the Holy Spirit came down on the Christ, the Son of God. And then, as if that wasn't amazing enough, a voice speaks down from heaven. Wouldn't you love to hear God's voice? Like, God, you know, which job should I take? Eugene, take that job. Eugene, choose that path. Take a left, not a right. I mean, wouldn't you love to hear his voice? How many times have you said, God, just tell me what to do? I, 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 would, I would give anything. For God to just kind of be like, I don't know, my GPS. You know, just tell me where to go, what to do. God, just speak. Just speak. I'll listen, I promise. God speaks. God shows up. John is saying, one far greater than me is coming. He baptizes him. And then God 
wants to prove a point here. This is my son. The heavens are shaken. The Holy Spirit is upon him. And I am well pleased. So what John was talking about is true. The king is here. The mighty one. The great and magnificent one. The redeemer. The Christ. The Messiah. The son of David. The son of Abraham is here. And people had been waiting for thousands of years for this man to arrive. And I want to close up with this. The king is here. The proclamation has been made. John is preparing hearts and people are turning back to God. And now Jesus shows up. The heavens are split open. The heavens come down. Uh, the, 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 the spirit comes down and a, and a voice says, I'm well pleased with you. And, and then what should come next? What should come next? What should come next is fanfare, celebration, jubilee, a banquet. When you elect a new president, uh, the moment the, the votes are in and the, and the opponent concedes, there's fireworks, there's confetti. Everybody's up all night in the middle. You're just celebrating, right? At least that's the way we do it here in the United States. In other countries, there's this coronation, right? There's this parade, You know, when somebody wins a championship, they raise a banner or a trophy or they wear a ring. When you get married, you invite all your friends and family. Everybody dresses up. And you put out fine food and drink. Whenever something spectacular happens, you're supposed to celebrate it in the most spectacular of ways. But not this king. Mark tells us, at once, the same spirit who descended upon Jesus like a dove, sent him out into the desert, into the wilderness. And he was in the desert 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. If you want to know what's going on here, Mark just uses two verses to talk about the temptation narrative. Go to Matthew and Luke, and they use uh, literally half a chapter each to talk about what happens. They actually talk about what Satan says to Jesus and how he tries to tempt him three times. But Mark here is concise and to the point. Remember, an economy of words. What Mark wants us to get away is not necessarily the dialogue between that temptation between Jesus and and Satan. What Mark wants us to know is simply this. Jesus, the Son of God, came to serve. Jesus, the Son of God, came to give. Jesus, the Son of God, came to love. He did not come like a king who was to be served like royalty. He did not come like an emperor who was going to tax all the people and take everything away. He did not come to rule and reign with a strong right hand inciting terror and fear into his subjects. What we see right here in the beginning of Mark is this. After we know who he is, and there's three exclamation points after that fact, the same spirit who anoints him with the Holy Spirit now says, go into the desert and be tempted. And what Jesus does is he goes in the desert for 40 days, which symbolizes the 40 years of wilderness wanderings that the Israelites experienced after the Exodus. 
And they failed. But Mark shows us that Jesus succeeded. And we could go into so much more here, but think about it for a second. Right here, and we can read this in Matthew and Luke, but Jesus could have taken all of this power. Jesus could have taken on his deity, and now he's got a humanity to go with it. And he could have said, you know what? I'm going to actually enjoy some of this. I, I'm going to make the earth my, my, my kingdom, my palace, my throne. I, I want people to feed me and fan me with big leaves and drop grapes into my mouth. I want all of my toes to be massaged, and then my feet, and then my ankles, and then my calves, and all the way up, head to toe. At the snap of a finger, Jesus could have exercised his power in that way. And we know this because Satan tempts him. He says, hey, you can have everything you want. You can have all the power you want. You can have every possession. It's at your disposal. But Jesus tells Satan three times, I am here to serve, to complete the work and the plan that my Father sent me here to do long before I even showed up in your midst. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. And I just want to close with this last thought. Even Jesus, the Son of God, was tempted. Even Jesus, the Son of God, was sent out into the wilderness. Even Jesus, the Son of God, was vulnerable to Satan. Even Jesus had to rough it at times. As you think back on 2012, maybe there were times when you felt a temptation and you're still ashamed of it, or you feel guilty, or you feel like, okay, God, I want to start afresh, I want to start anew. Maybe you feel like 2012 was a barren year for you. Every time you got your hopes up about something good, it was just, you were disappointed. Those hopes were dashed by reality, by things that didn't go the way that you had expected. Maybe you thought life was supposed to get easier after you graduated or got your job or got married or had children or whatever, that next mile marker that you were looking forward to. Like, once I get there, life should kind of be more smooth. It should make more sense. I'll have everything that I've worked to achieve. But then when you get there, you realize it got harder. Things didn't go according to plan. Our Lord and Savior knows what that is. Jesus experienced it himself. Jesus knows what it feels like to be rejected. He understands the weight of temptation. Jesus knows what it's like to have to endure physical pain, emotional pain, spiritual pain. Jesus came to serve. And one of the principal motifs that we will discover as we go through the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus came to be the servant king the humble king. My hope is that as we encounter him over the next several months on his terms, that we won't be able to stay the way we are, that we will be changed. Even though you've read Mark before, you can read Mark in 90 minutes. It's that short. In 90 minutes, you can read from chapter 1 to 16, and it's done. And maybe you can go do that right now after lunch. 
Maybe you've studied it. Maybe you've done a Bible study. But I, my prayer, our, our ministry staff, we've been praying that everything we preach this year is going to come from the heart of God and it's going it's to move our church to greater faithfulness and obedience, to love him, to make him first and foremost in our lives. So for the next 13 weeks, let's come with eyes wide open, with hearts open wide, to receive the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we uh, have come to church today to begin this new year, uh, we thank you that we also have the opportunity and chance uh, to begin uh, a new journey through the gospel of Mark. And uh, Father, whether we're going to be a part of the entire journey, whether we're just visiting or passing through or Uh, Lord God, we pray that this year uh, you would lead us uh, more so than you've ever led us, but really that we would be more submissive and obedient the way that Jesus, your son, was submissive and obedient. Even though he was the king who had come, he obeyed and submitted to the Spirit and went into the wilderness and was tempted for 40 days. And so, Lord God, may we also submit to your word, to your Spirit, to your authority and allow you to lead us and to shape us. And you don't take us through the highs and lows just to jerk us around. Uh, You don't allow us to feel pain just so you can get a kick out of it. Because, Lord God, we know that your son, your only begotten son, has also gone through all of these paths, has gone through all of these different ways. And so, Lord God, as we continue on this journey of faith for our lives, the way of salvation. Lord God, would you be our guide and our king. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.